Author Media presents Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, the professor of book marketing, Thomas Umstead Jr., and today we're going to talk about mentorship. Yes, mentorship is really important. If you ever feel alone in your writing journey, if you ever feel like you don't know what to do next, it's something that you need. Every hero on the hero's journey needs a mentor, and the journey of writing is no different. And so in this episode, I'm going to talk about 10 different places uh, to find mentorship. But first, I want to talk a little bit about why this is so important. Most authors, in my experience, feel like they are the exception, the chosen one, the one for whom writing will be easy and successful. They are called to write, and therefore, they will succeed without much effort. At least this is the thinking that most of them have early in their career. Uh, and the reality is, is that a mentor is the person who sets you straight, the person who teaches you that you still have a lot to learn and that success comes with hard work first. And no one is the exception to that rule. Even if you're incredibly talented, you still have to put in the hard work and you have to put that hard work in the right places so you're not wasting your time and just repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Speaking of which, this is another advantage of having a mentor is that as James Rubart says, it's hard to read the label when you're standing inside of the bottle and it's easy to make the same mistakes over and over. And a mentor is the person who looks at you sees your blind spots and helps you understand what those blind spots are. It's hard to see the ketchup on your own nose, yet it can be very obvious for a mentor. And there's a lot to learn to succeed. You know, learning how to write, especially learning how to make a living with writing is just as difficult as learning any other living, right? It's more, in fact, I would say it's more difficult than most forms of, of uh, making a living. So, you know, it's more difficult than a four-year degree in many cases, if you want to make a living at it. If you want to just you know write as a hobby and you're writing because you're fun or because it, it fulfills you or helps you work through pain from your past, you may not need a mentor. In fact, this is one of the questions that you have to ask is like, are you willing to suffer to get better? Are you willing to suffer for your work to change the world, right? Because the only reason your work will change the world, the only reason your work will impact lives or entertain people is if they pay money to read your book <laughs> or somebody else pays money to read your book. Uh, and then they're convinced to read it and to finish it. So there's a lot to learn to master, both the convincing them to buy the book, the convincing them to read the book after they purchase the book and convincing them to finish reading it. And there's a lot to learn to get there and a mentor can help you along the way. So another question to ask yourself to see if you're ready is, are you willing to commit to implementing the advice you get? Uh, it's not uncommon to be at a writer's conference and you sit down with somebody and you give them advice on their manuscript and they come back a year later with the same manuscript with the same mistakes. It's very easy to ask for advice, but are you willing to commit to implementing the advice? Are you actually wanting to get better and willing to put in the hard work and the suffering to get there? Uh, in every hero's journey, the hero thinks that he's farther along than he really is. And the mentor shows him, like I said, that there's a lot uh, still to learn. 
so as I go over these different places to find mentorship, I want to uh, really underline here that there's no right or wrong answer. A lot of people get into this thinking of like, there's one path that I have to take. And if I deviate from that path, or if I do something that the guru doesn't recommend, you know, I've made a mistake and I'm doomed. And that's, that is really toxic thinking. <laughs> so uh, there are pros and cons to everything in life. Anything you choose to do, you're choosing not to do something else. If you choose to eat your cake, you are thus choosing not to have your cake. And if you choose to have your cake, you're choosing not to eat your cake. There are pros and cons to both of those decisions. Now, if you are starving, eating your cake has more pros than it has cons, but there are still pros and cons uh, always. So I want you to, to remember that. Think of this as strategy. There's advantages and disadvantages. And at different points in your career, some of these different techniques and, and places and avenues of mentorship will be more helpful to you than others. So with that said, let's talk about the first avenue of mentorship, and that is books. So books are great in that they are cheap. You can learn just about anything. There are thousands of craft and mar uh, marketing related books on Amazon. Um, you can get advice from experts. In fact, a lot of the top people in the field have written books on, on writing and on marketing. And you can learn from dead mentors. <laughs> so uh, a master of the craft from a generation or two ago, uh, you can still learn from him. In fact, I was very impacted by an essay by Mark Twain in my early writing career. And it, uh, the title of the essay is The Literary Offenses of James Fenmore Cooper. And I'll link to it in the show notes. It's free. You don't have to pay to read it. And it's Mark Twain viciously and savagely critiquing James, James Fenmore Cooper, the author of Last of the Mohicans, for what a terrible author he is. And while he's critiquing this other author, he's dropping lots of advice on what makes for good writing. It's also pretty funny, as a lot of Mark Twain's writing uh, tends to be. Uh, some of the downsides of books, uh, you know, the flip side of being able to learn from dead mentors is that uh, the books are dated, especially when it comes to uh, marketing and uh, publishing to a lesser degree. Sometimes the advice that you get from a book is no longer uh, applicable because especially in the marketing world, things change really fast. So while I might recommend a marketing book for a year, there's very rarely will I recommend a marketing book uh, continually because oftentimes the specific techniques uh, no longer apply. Uh, the exception to this are books that are kind of more abstract, like Seth Godin, where he's more talking about like the philosophy of marketing. But even then, you have to then figure out a way of connecting that philosophy with actual practice. And so there's, there's a challenge there with books. Uh, another downside of books is that they're impersonal. So there's no one looking at you and telling you that you've got ketchup on your face. It's more of instructions on how to look into the mirror to see if you have ketchup in your face. Uh, also, books don't give you any accountability. In fact, this is probably the biggest downside of books. A lot of authors will buy books on craft and then not read books on craft. And so consider this, your friendly PSA on read the books on craft you've already bought. <laughs> it's the cheapest way you can improve uh, because you've already spent the money. Um, but there's no one holding you accountable. There's no one challenging you to do more. Uh, that you know, Books might have words that do that, but it doesn't replace a, a live human. And then there's, there's no real encouraging element. Um, it's very hard for a book to be encouraging because true encouragement is human. It's face-to-face. It's -face. Uh, I mean, sometimes some people get encouraged from books sometimes, but I, I really feel like, um, if you, at least in my life, the times when I have been 
really encouraged. It's been from actual human beings in real life, not people on the internet, not people on the other side of a piece of paper. <clears throat> so the bottom line is uh, the minds of experts, uh, you get access to these minds for $10 an expert. <laughs> when it comes to picking the brain of experts, there's no better bang for the buck. Uh, well, actually, there is one more, and we'll get to that next. Um, but books are really great bargain. Uh, but they are impersonal, and they require a lot of self-discipline in order to get the benefit from the books. Uh, but they're a great place to start. All right. So the second avenue of mentorship is podcasts and blogs. And I'd like to congratulate all of you for uh, taking advantage of this right now. So the advantage of podcasts and blogs is that they're free, typically. Um, with the Novel Marketing Podcast, we get four of the episodes a month away for free. And then the fifth episode is available only to our patrons. Uh, but you know, most podcasts are free most of the time. Uh, you can learn just about anything. Uh, in a podcast, I've, I've been really impressed how many niche podcasts there are on very specific and focused subjects. Uh, you get expert advice. There's different formats of podcasts. Some are, you know, just one guy talking to a microphone like I'm doing right now. But others are you know, like expert interviews. So you, one podcast can give you access to multiple different experts if you keep listening to it episode after episode. Another advantage of podcasts is that they tend to be cutting edge. Uh, they're much more recent than a blog, or sorry, than a book. Now, the book takes two years to publish, so if it's a marketing book, by the time it comes out, if it's traditionally published, it's already out of date, uh, potentially. You know, the, the case studies are already old and tired, uh, whereas podcasts can talk about things that are happening right now. Blogs even more so. Blogs are very cutting edge. Uh, podcasts tend to be a little bit deeper than blogs. Uh, so like when I'll have show notes, the show notes are very shallow, and you can skim them, you know, in two or three minutes. But the podcast takes 20, 30, 40 minutes to listen to. It's much more in-depth. Some of the content cons, though, it's limited interaction. You can comment on blogs. And with the Novel Marketing Podcast, we have a, a Facebook group that any listener can join on. And, and they can interact with each other. And they can interact um, with me there. And, and there's you know comments. And there's people emailing questions, which is actually I really love it when people um, call in with questions. Because it allows me to play the question ahead of time. You can hear the voices of other folks. And everyone can enjoy your accent. Because I know you don't think you have an accent. But we have listeners all over the world. And so a lot of our listeners will think you have a really fun accent wherever you're from. Um, one downside, though, of uh, podcasts, they tend to be a little unfocused. I try to keep my podcast very focused. But even so, every week is a different topic. Uh, so if you're needing help in a specific area, that podcast may not roll around to help you in that specific area until, you know, months in the future. Uh, more so if you send in lots of questions. So uh, the people who send me lots of questions get uh, the podcast more tailored towards them. Uh, but there's still, there's no accountability. There's no one holding your feet to the fire to make sure you hit the goals you set for yourself. And uh, there's no real encouragement. Again, you can be encouraged from somebody's story, and I try to put some encouraging things into each one of my episodes. But real encouragement, I feel, is human to human. Um, and so I may be wrong on this, but it's, it's not as encouraging as real life or um, real-time voice-to-voice would be. So bottom line, podcasts and blogs are a free, timely, and impersonal way up the learning curve. And I really encourage everyone to have this as a part of their overall mix, partly because it's so inexpensive. 
All right, the third way of getting mentorship is writers' conferences. These have uh, a lot of pros that you're already familiar with. Chances are, you know, you get to meet in person, so they're encouraging in that way. In fact, it's not uncommon uh, for me to see authors crying uh, while they're sitting across from somebody else who's encouraging them or giving them feedback. Um, sometimes the cries are tears of joy. Sometimes they're tears of sadness. Sometimes they're tears of relief. Just lots of emotions. <laughs> I don't see people uh, crying while listening to podcasts very often. Uh, hopefully I haven't made any of you cry on any of my podcasts. Um, so another advantage of writers' conferences is that you get expert advice, right? You get a lot of top experts will come into a, a conference and you can hear them speak on stage and maybe you can book someone on one time with them. And they tend to be very focused and they're excellent for networking. When it comes to networking, conferences are the um, best way to broaden your network. So there's two kinds of powerful networks. There's deep networks. We'll talk about the best way to build a deep network here in a second. And then there's broad networks, like shallow, but really wide. And conferences are really good at building that wide part of your network. Uh, so, which is really helpful. Uh, and they're also one of the best ways to find an agent, either by meeting the agent at the conference or by getting to know lots of authors who will introduce you to their agents. So uh, the cons of a writing conference, though, is that they are limited in time and scope. So you're there for three days or for seven days, and it's this super intense, right? You're up 12 hours a day. You're sitting in, you know, half a dozen hours of lectures every day. And the phrase I hear at many conferences, there's two phrases I hear. One is drinking from a fire hose, and the second is conference brain, whereby, especially for the introverted authors among us, which I, I am... I'm one of them. Uh, by day two or three of the conference, you're just numb. <laughs> you're just walking around as a human zombie, uh, no longer capable of coherent words uh, or learning or human interaction. <laughs> um, and often I still have to present while I have conference brain. It's always great fun. Um, so it, it's overwhelming. So it's kind of like you've got this, your mind is a sponge and you're holding it up to a fire hydrant and you will leave the conference with this sponge fully soaked. But a lot of the, what you learn is just going to roll right off because it, it lacks that accountability. There's no one holding you accountable and it's very easy for you to take a bunch of notes and then never look at those notes ever again. Um, Another downside of conferences is they can be expensive, especially if you don't live uh, near a big city that hosts conferences. So certain cities are kind of homes of conferences. So you're able to you know, drive, sleep in your own bed and go to the conference if you live close enough, which uh, dramatically decreases the cost of going to a conference. But uh, the real cost of conferences is in the airfare and in the lodging. So like running a conference is actually not a very lucrative uh, activity because authors are coming into the conference having already spent $1,000, $1,500 on travel and, and board and, and before they even pay for the conference. So let's say the conference all said costs $2,500. It's, it's a pretty expensive way of learning, especially when it's so overwhelming. So they're very valuable. And in the five-year plan, we do call for people to go to conferences, but we don't call for people to go to conferences as early as you might think, uh, or as often as you might think, because of that fire hose problem. Uh, the key to getting the most out of a conference is to 
prepare. And the best way to prepare is with the next avenue we're about to talk about. Uh, but the bottom line is the de- uh, going to conferences is the default for most authors. It's an easy way to spend a lot of money without much to show for it education-wise if you're not careful. So go over your notes. Make an effort to implement the things you learned at the last conference you went to before going to your next conference. Uh, but for ne- networking, nothing beats a conference for broadening uh, the size of your network. And so the fourth avenue for mentorship is online courses. Online courses blend uh, the pros and cons of podcasts, conferences, and books all together. So you get expert-focused advice. Uh, the more you pay for the course, the more personal they tend to be. Uh, and there's kind of a broad range. So there are you know, $2,500 courses where you're getting lots of one-on-one interaction with the instructor all the way down to, you know, $20 course or $50 courses where you just get like videos of the instructor. And so, so it's up to you kind of what you're looking for. Um, the videos though, you know, the, at the lower price is the better bang for the buck in the sense of learning, but you're going to get more encouragement and accountability um, if you pay for those kind of more premium courses that have that person uh, who's holding your hand. Uh, another advantage of an online course is that you get to learn at your own pace. So instead of it being a fire hydrant, it's a garden hose that you can turn on and off as you want. <laughs> and so you can fill up a swimming pool with a garden hose. Uh, you just have to do it a little bit at a time. And they're a really great way of learning a specific skill or kind of filling in a specific hole in your knowledge. And they're a great value compared to a conference. In fact, if you just, if you normally go to three conferences a year, if you cut down to two conferences a year and spend the money you would have spent on that third conference on courses, you can buy maybe a dozen courses for that money and you'll learn a lot more with those dozen courses than you would have at that one additional conference. Uh, Some of the statics, though, of online courses is that they're static. Uh, At least most courses are static, right? So it's the same course every year. Uh, So in that way, they're kind of like a book, right? So that's one of the downsides that courses have with books. Although, again, it depends on the course. Some courses are kept up to date uh, by the instructor. So that's one of the things you want to, to ask about. And they also tend to be impersonal, uh, right? You're one of many. Even if you're asking questions, the instructor typically doesn't really get to know you. You're you're one of. In fact, even with the you know twenty five hundred dollar courses, you know there's some really famous twenty five hundred dollar courses that'll have ten thousand people sign up for them, uh, which makes a lot of money for the instructor. Uh, but that that instructor isn't getting to know each one of those authors and really giving them personalized feedback. Uh, so there's limited accountability, limited encouragement, and limited focus. Again, depending on the course, uh, some courses offer more of those things, some offer less. The bottom line, though, is that courses are one of the best ways to fill in gaps in your knowledge, especially on a bang-for-buck perspective. And uh, I really do encourage you to cut one conference a year and spend that money on courses. You'll, you'll work your way up the learning curve faster. So from the one of the best bang for your buck methods to one of the worst bang for your buck methods, let's talk about avenue number five, a university degree. Uh, Almost every university has some sort of English program, uh, some that's geared towards fiction, some that's geared towards journalism. You know, sometimes they have a whole, you know, panoply of options when it comes to uh, writing related uh, degrees. And one of the advantages of getting a university degree is that it's a high credibility path uh, to if you're wanting to pursue traditional literary fiction, especially for literary fiction. 
in traditional fiction, uh, there may be some advantages to getting a university degree. Uh, you're getting degreed instructors. So if you care that your instructors have degrees, um, then you will for sure have that at, at a university degree. And uh, they're useful if you want to teach in the university yourself. Having a university degree is helpful. Um, that's all I can think of when it comes to pros. If you can think of some more pros of getting a university degree in English, you know, or some sort of writing-related degree, uh, do put it in uh, the comments. But the cons, I feel like, are are just intense. So the biggest con is that it's a really slow process. It takes four years to get uh, a university degree. But the bigger con by far is how expensive university degrees are. So I was doing the research because I knew that the price of college has been going through the roof, but I didn't realize how bad it had gotten. So for a liberal arts college, which are the kind of colleges that tend to specialize in these sorts of writing-related degrees, they now cost $25,000 to $50,000 a year. And sometimes that's not counting books, room, and board. The days of being able to work your way through college on a minimum wage job are over, right? If college costs $50,000 a year, you'll never get that with minimum wage. Even if you're working two minimum wage jobs and never go to class, you're still not going to get there. Uh, in fact, I encourage you for grins, check what your alma mater is now charging students to attend. So that degree that you got for a few thousand dollars, depending on when you graduated, um, my grandmother, when she went to college, paid $25 a semester. <laughs> now it's uh, $25,000 a semester. It's gone up 1,000% in two generations. Um, I checked my university that I went to. It's $40,000 a year. So to get a four-year degree, we're talking $160,000. And that is a lot of money. It is really hard to justify that in the learning that you're going to get in an English type major. It just doesn't increase your earning potential. In fact, um, somebody who's been in the industry for a long time, I don't see college grads, people who have especially like English college grads with liberal arts degrees as having any advantage of any significance. In fact, some of the top people in the industry, in fact, some of the top editors in the industry, and I'm not going to call them out, uh, they don't have degrees of any kind and no one knows because no one in the publishing world cares if you have a degree. They only care if you can write. They, they actually care about your actual skill. There may be some people who care, and, and you know, maybe if you're writing for a university, uh, you care. And, and I will say that's actually half the money in publishing is writing textbooks. Uh, but there's only a handful of people who write textbooks. Uh, another downside of college education is that the focus t tends to be on non-commercial writing. Uh, so they're not talking about like how to write genre fiction and the kind of books that people already want to read. They're more kind of the highbrow type um, writing. So uh, college is not the kind of investment nowadays that it was back when my grandmother went and it was $25 a semester, or when my dad went and it was $400 a semester. Um, it, as in certain degrees, just don't pay themselves back. I have friends that I went to school with when it was way less expensive who are in more debt now than they were when they graduated because their degree, their liberal arts degree, didn't increase their earning potential and they were never able to get out of the debt because of how big it is. And they're probably going to die with that debt. So they're becoming a debt peon. It's a form of debt peonage, um, which is like what we had in the Middle Ages with the peasants who never got free because they were in so much debt. It's, it's really unfortunate. And I realize I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but um, I really don't recommend getting a liberal arts uh, degree unless you can get a full ride scholarship, right? The, the math totally changes if you don't have to pay for it. If it's not costing you $160,000, 
Uh, it, it may make sense. But oftentimes, colleges will give you partial discounts, but then put all kinds of strings on those uh, discounts, which they call scholarships, but they're not, uh, you know, they're mostly just marketing. Um, and if you, you know, don't live on campus or you don't keep a certain GPA, you lose those discounts. And their expectation is, is that you're not going to be able to keep that scholarship all four years. And their other expectation is that it actually takes you five years to graduate, which is, I think, the average now. Uh, so instead of it being costing 160000 it's really 200000 Anyway, enough about college. Um, basically, if you can get a full ride, it might be worth it, but it's rarely worth the investment because it still costs you four years of your life. Um, and I would definitely not get school loans for a liberal arts degree because uh, you may never pay it off. And unlike any other kind of debt, uh, school loans are not absolvable in bankruptcy in the United States, which means um, it's the worst kind of debt to get. Even credit card debt is better because credit card debt, at least you can go bankrupt and get rid of it, whereas a school loan it can follow you to the grave. Um, all right, so that's enough about that. Let's talk about the sixth avenue for mentorship, virtual assistant apprenticeships. So this is perhaps the least known of the methods that I'm talking about. In fact, you may have never heard of these before, but successful authors, authors who are making $100,000 plus a year, almost all of them need help. You know, they're very busy with dealing with correspondence with readers, dealing with their website, doing if they're independently published, managing their ads, managing their email, and they're wanting help with all of these things. Maybe help with the writing itself, right? They're, they're needing help keeping the world straight, uh, keeping their notes organized, maybe help doing research if they're nonfiction. Um, lots of uh, top authors need a lot of help. And they're willing, because they're making the money now, they can afford to hire assistants to help them. And that assistant could be you. So of all of the methods that I'm talking about, this is the only one. It's not only free, but you actually make money. You get paid to learn. Uh, and you get to learn things that authors don't know to teach in their courses. You get to just observe a top author in her field or in his field. Uh, you learn advanced techniques uh, that you know you may not be able to learn from anyone else. There's there's a whole lot of kind of secret techniques that best-selling authors um, don't share. They don't teach from the stage, and the only way to learn them is to observe <laughs> what they're doing and um, reverse engineer it, or help them do it, and you'll learn how it's done. In fact, I'm looking to hire a VA to help with my podcasts, uh, to you know, to help book guests and help um, create better blog post companions for the podcast episodes. Uh, you know, taking the transcripts and turning it into a blog post uh, and and other kind of production related activities like that. So if you're interested, email me a resume. And you'll notice how I'm hiding this in the middle of this episode because I want people who are already listeners of the show uh, to apply. I don't want just random uh, people from the internet. I want I want listeners because I think they'll be the best at, at helping me. So if, if you're wanting to make some money on the side, uh, this can be a way to do it. Um, VA work is often flexible. You can do it from home. And it pays moderately well. It's typically independent contract work. Um, but, you know, let's say you're a stay-at-home mom and you don't have a lot of hours and you don't ever know when they're going to be, right? You, you have two or three hours a day to work on stuff, but it's during nap time. And you're never quite sure when that is. Uh, working as a virtual assistant can be a really great way of uh, supplementing your income and also uh, learning along the way. So those are the pros. The cons, uh, good VA jobs are hard to find, especially for successful authors. There's not that many successful authors that are making uh, six figures a year. Um, and so it takes some effort to find them. And, and you know, this is where having a good network is really helpful. Uh, it's also time consuming. 
uh, right? It takes a lot of time to work that job and it's a job. So a lot of what you're doing is just grunt work. So you're not only doing the like, ooh, cool, I had no idea how to run Facebook ads and now I'm managing you know, $5,000 worth of Facebook ad spend a month. It's not just stuff like that. It's also like boring work or, or, or less challenging work. And you have to do that too, right? Because they're not hiring you because they want to teach you. They're hiring you because they want you to work. <laughs> but you're going to learn along the way. But ultimately, you're being hired because it's a job. Uh, there's no real accountability for your own writing, right? They're not going to be holding you accountable to make sure that you're hitting your own writing goals. In fact, if you are really successful in the VA job and the author is really successful, the VA job may grow and grow and grow and eclipse your writing if you're not careful. It also requires a big um, time commitment. Because, you know, most authors are wanting somebody that will stick around with them for a year or two because there's a lot of training and, you know, getting somebody up to speed is a lot of work, especially for a VA job. Uh, and so they're not wanting to do that only for you to leave after three months or six months. Uh, so bottom line, it's an unconventional way uh, to learn from authors uh, who you wouldn't learn from otherwise. And it could be a great option for authors who are time rich and cash poor. So if you have lots of time on your hands, but not a lot of money, this can be a great way up the learning curve. The seventh avenue of mentorship is one-on-one -on -one coaching. So where you get on the phone or nowadays, typically it's done face-to-face over Skype or Zoom or Google Hangouts or something like that, where you meet with somebody who is coaching you. And the advantage here is that it's personal. They get to know the coach gets to know you, gets to know your book, gets to know your writing or your marketing or platform, whatever it is you're wanting coaching with. It's ongoing typically. I mean, some people will book, you know, just one consultation with me and they'll pick my brain for an hour and I'll send them an invoice and they're very happy. And, and maybe they'll do it again in six months. Uh, but other people, you know, they do it ongoing, which I think is more valuable because that's where you get that accountability. It's kind of like hiring a personal trainer. Part of the advantage of having a personal trainer is that it helps you actually get to the gym <laughs> because you know you paid for the personal trainer whether you're going to the gym or not. And it's also uh, very focused. In fact, it's laser focused just on you. You know, it's private uh, tutoring. The cons are that it's very expensive. And in fact, I would say it's probably the second most expensive option uh, in this list. Although compared to a university, it's a bargain. <laughs> so you can, you know, if, if the other option is $160,000, you can, for a few thousand dollars, um, even $10,000, you can talk with the top authors in the field and have them one-on-one -on -one, uh, coach you. Uh, and they're far more successful than the professors in those English departments in terms of their market, market success. Um, so again, if... Much better deal than college, but way more expensive than buying a book or going to a conference or um, getting a course. Uh, and the other challenge with one-on-one -on -one coaching is that good coaches are hard to find. Uh, you know, I don't know of a marketplace of writing coaches. You kind of have to know somebody. Uh, or um, one, you know, easy way to do it is to hire a podcaster as your coach because you're able to listen to their podcast uh, for however long you want ahead of time, and you can get to know if you like that person, if you think they have things they have uh, to teach you, uh, maybe take some of their courses if they have some courses, uh, and that way you can kind of vet them ahead of time. But finding a good coach and one who's a good fit for you is a, a bit tricky. Uh, but the bottom line is, if you can afford it, this is one of the fastest ways up the learning curve because it's so focused and personal to you.
All right, the eighth avenue of mentorship is Facebook groups. There's lots of Facebook writing communities. And these can be good because they're encouraging, because it's personal encouragement, uh, right? That person is encouraging you personally. So while it's not face-to-face, it is personal, right? You post something and somebody leaves a comment to encourage you. Although a lot of it is pseudo-encouragement, right? Somebody puts a little heart underneath your post. It's like, how much did that actually encourage you? Probably not very much. Um, they're easy to join, typically. And a lot of them, anyone can join. Uh, they're fun. People like to be on Facebook. People, A lot of authors really enjoy social media. And anytime I start sharing stats about how social media doesn't work for marketing, it makes them sad because they enjoy it. They enjoy being there. Um, it's low risk. right? It's easy to hide in one of these Facebook groups and just kind of lurk. And I will say, we do have a Facebook group for the Novel Marketing Podcast. We have uh, an official discussion thread for each episode, and people will post questions. So I'm not against Facebook groups, and they can be uh, helpful. Uh, But there are some cons. Uh, The biggest cons is that uh, Facebook is a time vortex, uh, especially for me. I get on there, and I see the little red notifications, and I go on to do work, right? I'm going to be in a group and end up getting lost in some political debate that I have no business being in, uh, which makes me sad and gets me distracted. And it's 30 minutes of time on Facebook only, a uh, small portion of which was useful. <laughs> uh, so that that's a risk. Maybe you're more disciplined than me and you can mitigate that risk. Uh, the other, and this is a much bigger con, is that uh, the quality of advice is a real mixed bag on Facebook especially in the bigger groups that aren't well um, policed. So I see a lot of bad advice shared on Facebook groups. And uh, I often wonder where these marketing superstitions that I keep trying to debunk on my podcast, where they come from, where are people learning this bad marketing advice? And um, sometimes I'll even ask somebody, I'll be you know doing a coaching call with somebody or I'll meet somebody at a conference and they're telling me something they're doing and I'll just pause and be like, where did you hear to do that? Who told you that was a good idea? And they often get real defensive. I need to find a friendlier way of asking that question, I guess. But uh, the answer almost always ends up being, oh, well, somebody in some Facebook somewhere, Facebook group somewhere told me it was a good idea. And I have seen just the worst. <laughs> so I was on a Facebook group recently lurking because I like to listen to what authors are telling each other. And somebody is like, I'm having trouble. My book's not selling. Uh, I don't know what to do. And, you know, this is somebody who's a brand new author. It's their first book. Her book's not selling. And this guy gets on. He's like, you need to go do signings at bookstores. It's a way of getting your name out there. And, um, you know, you may not sell a lot of copies, but it'll help introduce you to readers. I'm like, oh, my gosh. That is the worst possible advice you can give to somebody who's already discouraged. <laughs> Somebody's discouraged. Their book's not selling. You send them to a book signing where they sit alone at a, right, at a bookstore for four hours with no one buying their book? You will crush them. <laughs> they, will, they will be crushed. It's like even best-selling authors go to book signings and no one shows up. Uh, you have to be um, really famous <laughs> to make a book signing at a bookstore work nowadays. Um And typically, book signings now only work for authors who don't need them to work. Like, they're not a way of, like, getting the word out there about your book. No one goes to a bookstore wanting to buy the book from the guy signing the books. In fact, they often avoid it because it's awkward, right? It's like, oh, I don't even want to go anywhere near that person because I want to have an awkward conversation and feel pressured to buy a book that I don't know anything about. Um, So anyway, I could give many examples of the kind of bad advice that's shared on on Facebook groups. Um, because it's often peer advice and you often don't know the other people who are giving you advice. Uh, so that's that's a risk. But the bottom line is, they're, they're, you know, Facebook groups are better than nothing. And the benefit really depends on the group. There are some groups that are paid access groups. I did some coaching uh, in Trisha Goyer's group. She's got a group that you pay to access and 
Uh, she brings on experts to uh, do like office hours and you, you know, the her members can ask them questions and uh, the quality of the advice in there is really high. And she's in there a lot and her virtual assistant's in there a lot um, answering questions and making sure the advice that's shared is good advice. I try to do the same in the free uh, novel marketing Facebook group. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a real mixed bag. <laughs> so um, I would look for kind of the smaller groups that have credible oversight and, and be picky with Facebook groups you join. Don't just join a whole bunch of uh, Facebook groups. All right. The ninth avenue of mentorship is critique groups. Uh, this is when you meet with real life writers in your hometown. Maybe you can meet online, but typically these are done in person. And the advantage of these is that they're inexpensive. They're personal. Uh, you're, you're meeting in face-to-face -face in real life, and they're really good for accountability, especially if it's a critique group. You've got to bring your next part of your manuscript to the next week. Uh, these are kind of the fundamental kind of blocking and tackling of becoming a better writer, especially for novelists. I feel like early in a novelist's career, uh, the few things beat a critique group for helping them get up the learning curve and improving their craft. Some of the cons, though, of a critique group is that you're risking inexpert advice. So typically, critique groups are people who are all the same level because there's no, nothing really in it for a really advanced author to have a bunch of beginning authors in their critique group because the advanced author is not going to learn much from the beginners. And so it's very one sided. It's the only way that typically works is if the beginners are paying the advanced author. But I just don't know very many advanced authors who do that. So um, the more advanced you are personally, like the more up the learning curve you've gotten, the more valuable the critique group is uh, for you because you can get into a better critique group. If you have nothing published and everyone in your critique group has nothing published and no one's read any books on writing and only one or two people have gone to a conference, it's the blind leading the blind. <laughs> and you, you can be getting advice that's bad um, that actually makes your writing worse. And it can be very confusing for somebody who's just a beginner. They haven't found their voice yet and they don't know how to interpret advice and know what to listen to and what not to listen to. Or sometimes there's like one um, really loud mouthed person who's convinced that he's the greatest thing to happen to writing. And he um, very loudly is giving most of the feedback and he's a bozo. <laughs> so a bozo is somebody who doesn't know that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, it's more often men uh, in my experience that um, they just don't know that they don't know and those can kill a, a writing group. But that doesn't mean that's every writing group. And it really depends on the writing group. So um, the other con of writing groups and critique groups is that they're hard to find. In fact, Basically, you just need to anticipate you're going to have to start one yourself. Uh, writers all want to join somebody else's writing group. And uh, there's just the demand for writing groups is way higher than the supply of writing groups because um, everyone wants somebody else to be the leader. The advantage of being the leader yourself, though, is that you can craft the kind of writing group that you want to be a part of. And there's a lot of advantage to being um, the boss. Uh, rank doth has hath its privileges, as they say. Um, another con, this isn't really a con, but it's something to kind of state, is that uh, critique groups tend to be very craft focused. So it, there's a shift that happens, especially for novelists, where uh, they've read all the writing books, and their craft is as good as it can get easily. 
you know, writers are always improving, but eventually you get to the point where you can't improve from reading a craft book. You can't improve from going to a conference. The only way that you can improve is reading books by other writers and watching what they're doing, kind of reverse engineering it. And once you're good enough, you're, you have totally different eyes when you read a book and you're able to see the how and the why of really great literature, um, which is why I really enjoy discussing literature with authors because when they are reading Dostoevsky, they see things in it uh, that a normal reader doesn't and it's it's very fun uh, so at some point you get to the point where a critique group um, isn't helping you with the main things you're needing helping with so which is marketing <laughs> the actual selling of the book uh, so once your craft gets good enough suddenly the marketing piece of it uh, becomes the a real differentiator between authors who are selling you know, a few thousand copies a year and selling tens of thousands of copies a year. While there are craft differences between authors in those tiers, there's also very real uh, marketing differences. So a critique group's not going to help you with that uh, marketing elements as much. So bottom line, uh, they're a great way to improve your craft, uh, but they're only as good as the other authors in the group. <laughs> so uh, the key to doubles tennis is to have a good partner and beware of bozos. Uh, it's very easy to have a group with no bozos, but you have to just be aware of the, of the bozos. All right, the final group. We've we've talked about nine different ones. There's ten. The tenth group is mastermind groups. I'm a big fan of mastermind groups. They're kind of like a critique group in some ways, but they tend to meet online, and they tend to be more focused on publishing and marketing and less on craft. Although you can have them that talk about all of those things. And I've been a part of a mastermind group for, gosh, almost 10 years now. I think we're seven or eight years uh, along. And it's been probably the best thing for my career uh, that I've been a part of. And there's two kinds of mastermind groups. There's peer-based mastermind groups and expert-based mastermind groups. Uh, the advantage of an expert-based one is that there's somebody who's running it and you have the expert uh, to pick the brain of. Um, and especially if you're just beginning, this fixes the bozo problem because there's at least one person uh, in the room who can you know, call someone out if they're speaking nonsense. <laughs> um, but the other kind of mastermind group is a peer-based mastermind group, uh, which is where you're in a mastermind group with other people who are kind of in similar places. And that's the mastermind group that I've been in all these years is a peer-based mastermind group. It's not free to be a part of it because uh, we all have to contribute. Uh, mastermind groups are a part of give and take, and we also meet in person once a year. So there's some real cost to that. And not all mastermind groups you know, all fly together to meet in person, but the one I'm in does that. So uh, they're inexpensive, generally speaking. Um, you know, it depends on the mastermind group, though. And it's, you know, some costs, you know, two hundred fifty dollars a month and up. Some are cheaper. Um, you get expert advice, especially if you have true masterminds in your group. Uh, really great accountability. Um, this is one of the best kinds of accountability because it's not just the mentor keeping you accountable; it's also your peers keeping you accountable. It's like you're you're on a team, and it's like you don't let down the team because you're all in this together. You're encouraging each other together. You're all trying to succeed. Uh, together and I've had uh, some really great accountability in my group. In fact, sometimes what we'll do is we'll set a goal for ourselves, and if we fail to meet the goal, we have to buy everyone in the group an Amazon gift card. <laughs> and uh, I've bought Amazon gift cards for uh, people in my group before, or just sent them money on PayPal, and I have received Amazon gift cards from people in my group. But more often, we actually hit our goals, which is really great. Um, this isn't done meanly, right? It's, you opt in. You only do this if you want to do it. But if you're really needing uh, and wanting people to hold your feet to the fire, a mastermind group is a really great way to do 
doing that. Because uh, to succeed in publishing, it's not just a matter of getting knowledge. It's also about implementing that knowledge and living what you've learned. They're a great source of community and they're really deep networking. So of my network, I have a broad network of lots of people I've met at writers' conferences. And then I have my deep network of the you know, seven or eight people in my mastermind group. And I get far more value from my mastermind network of just those handful of people than I do from the broad network because we'll do anything for each other, right? Because we've known each other for so long and we're so committed uh, to each other's success and we know each other so well. Uh, also, uh, these are very advanced, or they can be. So you do get to the point, like I was talking about, where reading books doesn't do you much good anymore. Um, in Mastermind Group, if you're with other people who are challenging each other and, challenging each other and innovating, um, you never grow out of a Mastermind Group. They, they grow with you, so to speak. Uh, some of the cons, they can be hard to find. Uh, some of the same challenges with starting a writer's group. You may have to start one yourself. It's about give and take. So, you know, like with a course, you just show up and you take, 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 take. It's all about you learning. With a mastermind group, it's more collaborative. You're sharing things that you've learned as well, and you're sharing your life with them as they share their lives with you. And some mastermind groups uh, can be expensive. You know, in fact, I know mastermind group. I have a buddy who's in a mastermind group. It's thirty thousand dollars a year, <laughs> and he swears by it. Um, he and he's gotten his business transformed. Uh, so it was worth it for him. Uh, you know, I've seen other groups that are more like $250 a month, but mastermind groups can be uh, really expensive, uh, but they don't have to be. So bottom line, it's one of the best forms of mentorship, especially in the long run. I'm a big fan of mastermind groups and typically you meet face to face on the computer. So you use Google Hangouts or Zoom or similar technology. All right. Our sponsor today is uh, the Novel Marketing Patreon, which actually I'm starting two mastermind groups. We have two new patron levels for two new mastermind groups uh, that I am starting. So I'm putting um, my actions where my mouth is and because a lot of people have been like, I'm looking for a group. I'm looking for a group. Where can I find a group? Well, I'm starting two. So if you want to pick my brain, if you want to, if you want me to get to know you and get to know your writing on an ongoing basis, this is something you may want to check out. We're going to have two groups. One's for unpublished authors, and the focus is going to be on getting published. So that's both uh, learning how um, the publishing process works, both for traditional and independent, but you know, me helping you through that, knowing what the next steps are and uh, how to get published. And if you're trying to decide, we, we can you know help you with that. Uh, the second group is for published authors, and the focus there is on selling more books. So the kind of demarcation I'm using is, do you have a book on Amazon? <laughs> so if you have a book on Amazon, you're published, you're probably asking questions about selling more books than you're for the published um, author group. So each author is going to get a chance to pick my brain and learn from the other's authors as well. We'll also be setting realistic goals. You'll set your own realistic goals, but we'll encourage you and help you uh, set them, and then we'll hold you accountable to accomplish them. And it may just be a check-in, right? You have to tell everyone at the next meeting whether or not you hit their goal. You don't have to do the Amazon gift card thing if you don't want to. Uh, but if you do, that's up to you. Uh, and if we do do that, I'll probably set it up where th that doesn't go to me. So you only give it to the other students. Because um, I think that, that that would be weird if I, if I got it. Um, so the way I'm doing it is I'm running these through Patreon as reward tiers. So if you're already a patron, uh, you just upgrade your reward tier. So if you're a $5 patron, you just upgrade to the $50 level or the $100 level. And I will say, if you're one of the people who've been waiting for spots to open up in the sold out $5 level, this is your chance as folks um, upgrade to get to these higher levels I'm expecting. In fact, I've already seen one uh, open up. 
uh, where you know, some $5 levels will uh, appear because it's been sold out more or less the whole time. You know, somebody will drop out and often within 24 hours, somebody else jumps in and grabs it. So I, I suspect there's quite a few of you hovering around that sold out $5 level on Patreon. Um, so, and if you're not a patron yet, you just, uh, you can click the link in the show notes to go to our Patreon page. It comes with the, the, both mastermind levels come with all of the perks in all of the other levels. <laughs> so you get featured on the podcast from time to time. You get featured in the show notes. You get access to the podcast host directory. You get the patrons only episode and you get all of the patrons only discounts. So there's a lot that's packed in there. And I do encourage you to check those out. Each group's limited to only 10 people. So I'm expecting, or I wouldn't be surprised if they sell out very quickly. In fact, it may be that they're sold out already by the time you hear this. But you can you can go to um, Novel Marketing's uh, Patreon page and you can check to see if there's any spots still available. Speaking of patrons, our patron of the week is Eloise White, author of Soul Inspirations. You'll gain a new relationship with Jesus as you trust him to be your confident healer and life-giving friend. So thank you, Eloise White, uh, for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. And if you'd like to become a patron at any of the levels, or at least any of the levels that are not sold out, uh, you can, we'll have a link uh, to do that in the show notes. Now, my daughter um, has had a superpower. We were convinced that she can take anything that is clean and turn it into something that is messy. I don't know if this is a toddler power or just something that all babies have, but it seemed like she could take a clean food and find a way of wearing it all over her face. Uh, she could take a clean room and turn it into a messy room, seemingly, seemingly without any effort whatsoever. So when her first birthday came around, we are very excited to give her a smash cake. So this is a custom for those of you international listeners. You may or may not do this in your country, but uh, in the States, it's common to give a toddler for the first birthday a small cake uh, that they smash <laughs> and make a huge mess with. So we set up Mercy in the middle of the living room. And actually, real quick, if you're an international listener and you don't have that custom, you have a different custom, I'd love to hear about it. Okay, because I suddenly got really curious. Uh, things like that, I just assume everyone in the world does it, and maybe they don't. Uh, but anyway, so we set up Mercy in the living room on her uh, high chair, and all of her grandparents are gathered around, a bunch of her aunts and her uncles are gathered around because there's not enough room in our breakfast room to have everybody. We set her up and we put this cake in front of her, and we are like ready for her to use her superpower and demolish this cake. It's like the one time um, when she has full permission and is encouraged to make a mess and she stares at the cake and she stares at the cake and she finally takes one finger and she scoops out a little bit of frosting and puts it in her mouth. <laughs> she goes on to eat this cake in the cleanest possible way I've ever seen a toddler eat anything in my entire life. <laughs> we ended up having the cake left over because like, even when we're trying to encourage her, no, you can smash it. You can grab chunks out of it. She just wouldn't do it because she had all those eyes on her. And uh, she just wanted to take very discreet, very clean bites out of it. And it was so fascinating because it was not at all what we were expecting. It ended up being a really enjoyable and kind of memorable moment, actually, in some ways more memorable because every baby smashes their smash cake, right? They're wearing the cake all over from head to foot. They have frosting splattered all over their face. And yet this baby didn't do it. And so uh, my encouragement and, and the reason why I suspect is because she had all those eyes on her, right? She doesn't normally eat 
in the middle of the living room with a dozen people watching her, right? I think she got self-conscious with how many people were watching her. So she was very careful in how she ate her cake and her superpower of making things messy failed. <laughs> so anyway, um, my encouragement to you is perhaps in your, if you're writing a novel, have one of your characters do something a little out of character and, and do that on purpose as a writer, like write that in. Because sometimes a little bit of unpredictability can make for a better story. The key, though, is that you have to have a good reason for this change, right? There's got to be a reason why their superpower failed them at the critical moment, right? And my baby is really good at making a mess, as a mess when no one's watching or only mom and dad are watching. But when everyone is watching, suddenly she's very clean, right? You know, find some way of having your characters do something a little bit different because a little bit of unpredictability can really liven up your story. If you have a question you'd like us to answer in a future episode, uh, do give us a call on our listener helpline, 512-827-8377. You can also send us a high-quality recording at authormedia.com slash contact. Uh, you've been listening to Tom Sumstadt Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.